we hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Hello, this is Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnut. And we're so excited because our podcast is all about women worth knowing. Yes, and we've met so many women in history. Yeah, tons. And don't you feel like you know them? Yes, like they're all friends. And I can't wait to meet them in heaven. I know, that's <laughs> that's so, so true. I like that. <laughs> so be like, oh, wait, I know you. That's we're, right. all, we're old friends, whether that's you right. realize it or not. <laughs> you know, years ago, I actually uh, met this woman that I would read about in an article. I met oh. her in Hawaii. And I said to her, are you still making your quilts? And she said, how did you know I make quilts? And I said, I read an article on you and your husband and guidepost. And she was like, that article is so old. I can't believe it. But I wow. felt like I knew her yeah. because of that article. Oh, I love it. That's awesome. Isn't that, that fun? Oh, that probably made her day. So <laughs> that's Made awesome. mine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Even though she wasn't making the quilts anymore. But yeah, tragic. Yes. <laughs> so today, um, as you may know, we've been walking through um, some of the medieval women, women of the Middle Ages. And in our last episode, we did look at a couple. Yes. Oh, yeah. We looked at a couple characters. Mystics. Oh, unforgettable. We could call your women women unforgettable. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's very true. I mean, Joan of Arc is very unforgettable and eccentric. We've looked at some eccentrics, though, before. Yes, we have. So that's OK. Yes, we have. <laughs> we like them. And so, yeah. Yes. And I think we got a taste of the more extreme side of mysticism with her. You know, she was uh, very influential, even though she was eccentric, um, especially kind of in the political realm. And then we also looked at, on the other end, Julian of Norwich, who spent most of her life in seclusion. She was almost a hermit, not completely, um, but she spent several years praying and then recording her meditations on these visions that she had of Jesus' suffering and crucifixion. So very different experiences. But Today, I want to start with a mystic who I think was a little bit more balanced. And she's actually my favorite of the mystics. Her name is Catherine of Siena. Oh, right. Yes. So she was, like some of these other gals, a young, uneducated woman. But she was probably the most effective and practical of the mystics. One biographer said, Mystics are often viewed as hopeless escapists from both reason and action. But the true mystic seeks to fulfill the first and second great commandments right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is true. And, and she was a true mystic in that sense. But she also loved her neighbor as herself in practical ways. She went out and tried to, you know, really live out all that the Lord had poured into her. Now, what's interesting to, to bring up is she was born in the 1300s. Mm, yes, we're, yes. <laughs> that was just the time that there was a lot of, it was almost like the Catholic Church turned on the Catholic Church. Yeah, it was a mess. And mm -hmm. that was when the Knights of Templar actually were persecuted and disbanded mm -hmm. and, and they were outlawed. So here they had been the heroes of the church and they had been these men of integrity that were helping pilgrims go to Jerusalem. And now here they are being persecuted by the church for their integrity because they wanted their money. So I think it's yeah. important to talk a little bit oh, about I, the yeah. atmosphere oh, yeah. uh, because she was born in what, 13? In 13, whoops, I have it here. She was 13, born in 1347. 1347. So right in the middle right. of all this, and we'll definitely right. see like the 1300s were yucky. Yeah, <laughs> yes. So, um, but she understood, as her biographer said, that love of God and love of neighbor are inseparable in the Christian life. That's and so, so uh, Cheryl Forbes said that Catherine emphasized the dual nature of Christianity, concern for this world and concern for the next. So again, like I said, she had some balance and she lived, like Cheryl said, 
during what has been called, actually the 1300s were called the calamitous century. If mm-hmm. you look back on history, it's just been, it was a chaotic, terrible period in Europe. Um, the church was so corrupt that like Cheryl was saying, you know, groups like the Knights Templar had been vilified and uh, exactly. the church was collapsing on every level. You had world rulers rebelling against the Pope because he was so overreaching and corrupt and greedy for power uh, and money. Uh, The Great Schism shook the church. If you've ever heard of that, that was a time when there were actually two popes being elected, one in France and one in Italy. So the church was just a big mess. And the icing on the cake was when the Black Plague broke out, often referred to as the bubonic plague. And I'll get into that in a little bit here because Catherine comes into play with that. Um, But that decimated the population of Europe. In fact, there was one wave of the plague in the 14th century in which a quarter of the Western world was wiped out, one fourth of the whole Western world. In fact, over a four year period, 75 to 80 percent of the Mediterranean countries were killed. That's I mean, crazy. you want to talk about a pandemic. That's crazy. Which yeah. is crazy. I know only 20% of the well, people that was surviving. Before they had vaccines. They had no clue. They, yeah. And they had no and, way to fight oh, it either. They, yeah. And they weren't, I mean, they, yeah, they just had no concept even. We've talked about before of like germs how germs hygiene. were, yeah, suspected. Um, you know, all of those things that we just wouldn't even think about. But uh, there was none of that hygiene available, uh, hygienic care. So clearly reform was desperately needed. You also had like peasants revolting against the nobility. And so there's a lot of social upheaval and chaos on every level. And so this is where Catherine comes into the picture. She's born into this huge Italian family in Siena. And I, when I say huge, I mean huge. She was the last of 25 kids. Whoa. I know. I was like, is that from one woman? I know. She must have been part <laughs> rabbit. I don't know how that. that's possible. There must have yes. been more than, it must have been a stepmom. I don't know. Well, so many women died in childbirth. Exactly. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure that was the case. But she was uh, one of those who she was just very devoted to God from a very early age. Um, it was said that when she was only five years old, Whenever she would go up and down the stairs, she would pray on every step. So I'm just picturing her family. They probably never sent her upstairs to go run and grab something for them because it's like, oh, great. It'll take her an hour to get there. So she's on step three. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Especially with 25 siblings. Can you imagine? That's a lot of prayers. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Yeah, that's true. So she's an intercessor. Yes. What a girl, right? At age five. Uh, When she was six, she said she had her first vision in the sky above the church, a picture of Jesus Uh, reigning on his throne with his hand raised in blessing and surrounded by Peter, Paul, and John. So that was when she had her first vision. And around that time, I think her parents realized how spiritually serious she was. And so as a young girl, uh, they decided, well, you know, we'll give you space for this. And so they gave her actually a little room in the basement so that she could go spend time in prayer. And this is at six. Yeah, six, seven years old. Um, But yeah, you remember, this is a more um, generally religious time. And so people respected those who felt like they were more spiritually inclined and stuff like that. So um, she wanted to just have a a plank for a bed, a log for a pillow, and a little lamp and a crucifix. And so she would fast, pray, meditate. So she spent a little time, almost like what was called then an anchorite, which would be kind of like a hermit a little bit when she was young. Um, when she was pretty hard to do that with 25 siblings. I don't know how I know. (laughs) Some of this is just like really remarkable. Yes. Now, when she was seven, she actually also said that she would never get married. And that might sound weird to us. It's like, well, you're seven. Why do you have to make this decision? But remember back then, girls were getting married around 12 or 13 years old. And so, you know, she kind of had to make up her mind quick (laughs) before she was of age. And so her parents initially were kind of upset with this because that was really contrary to the culture. The most acceptable thing was just for young girls to get married. But she was so insistent, eventually they gave in and they were recorded as saying, may God preserve us, dearest daughter, from trying in any way to set ourselves against the will of God. 
We have long seen that it is no childish whim of yours, and now we know clearly it is the Spirit of God that constrains you. So by the time she was 16, she joined a Dominican convent, and she spent three more years in meditation and prayer and seclusion. She had more visions. And then when she was 19, uh, she had that experience. And we've talked about this before with the mystics. They had this thing in mysticism in which uh, they said they became spiritually married to Christ uh, to become unified uh, close to Jesus. That was kind of the goal of the mystic was a spiritual marriage, not for just for women, but for men who were mystics as well, like Bernard of Clairvaux and some of those guys. And so, again, this might sound really odd to us, but that was uh, their real desire was to be truly as unified with the Lord as possible. And so at that point, she felt like, OK, now I've, I'm really devoted fully to the Lord. Now I can come out of seclusion and serve the Lord practically. Again, not every not every uh, mystic did that. Some of them were like Julian of Norwich and spent more time in seclusion, but she just felt like the Lord was calling her to move out a little bit. Uh, and this might not seem like a big deal to us because it's very common for us to see women in ministry and serving out in the community now. But back then, again, we're talking 1300s. So for a woman, especially a nun who was supposed to be cloistered away in a convent, this was kind of shocking for her to just come out in public as a nun um, and just go out and start working in the community. But she really felt like God had spoken to her and said, uh, this is what she recorded, quote, the word impossible belongs not to God. Am not I he who created the human race, who formed both man and woman? I pour out the favor of my spirit on whom I will. Go forth without fear in spite of reproach because I have a mission for you to fulfill. And so this she took as her kind of divine mandate and started taking care of the sick and needy in very practical ways, sharing the gospel with people. And uh, she visited those in prison. She took food to the hungry. She gave up her own clothes to the poor. Again, a very practical kind of ministry that was unique. And then, dun, 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 in 1374, another wave of the plague broke out in Siena. And remember, we're talking, I told you what happened in the Mediterranean. Well, obviously, Siena being in Italy is right in that region where the plague was most devastating. And so I actually want to, you know, some of you might be familiar with what the bubonic plague or the Black Death was, but just to describe it a little bit further... It was just such a disgusting and painful disease. We know now that it was transmitted to humans um, by fleas that were on the backs of rats that were running around everywhere. And we've talked about before, in fact, a few episodes back, Cheryl was um, talking about how she was walking through at York in the shambles, uh, this, this street, and realizing like, oh my gosh, this is where people would just throw their excrement out the windows, where you have horse manure everywhere. There'd be rivers of excrement just gross. running down the gutters. Yes. Yeah, and like I mean, we think of food. gutters as like, you know, water. Yeah, we just think drainage, of water. And mm -hmm. we don't realize what they originally were used for. Oh, it was so gross. And so mm -hmm. rats are everywhere. And right. they had fleas and those would get, you know, onto people and bite them. Of course, back then they didn't realize it, but now we know. And so uh, people didn't know what was causing this. And so historians, you know, they kind of debate because they, they know there were other kinds of disease also present in an environment like this. But the Black Death did the most damage. And you can even see, um, I remember I was in the Museum of London and there were all of these paintings of people that had bubonic plague, you know, and as best as they could draw it, they had people with splotches and Red and black dots all over Did them. You ever, it was pretty gross. I heard Ring Around the Roses. Oh, yeah. No, go ahead. That yeah. song, when we sing Ring Around the Roses, yeah. pocket full of posies, ashes, mm -hmm. ashes, we all fall down, that it's actually describing the bubonic plague, mm -hmm. that your cheeks would get really rosy and um, you would smell really bad. So they would put posies to help the smell and then they would sneeze and fall down dead. Oh, it was, yeah. No, exactly. It was just so foul. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, here's a description from a historian about the bubonic plague. He said, the most famous symptom of bubonic plague is swollen lymph glands called 
boobles. These mm-hmm. are commonly found in the armpits, groin, or neck. Ugh. Other symptoms include spots on the skin, like Cheryl was saying, that are red at first and then turn black, mm-hmm. heavy breathing, continuous blood vomiting, aching limbs, coughing, terrible pain. The pain is usually caused by the actual decaying or decomposing of the skin while the infected person is still alive. Upon death, the cadaver will spasm for a period of time. Kind of like what you're saying with the sneezing. sneezing and then they yeah. kind of spasm. And so back then, because they had no concept of germs, they just really thought... This was demonic. They just thought, oh, my gosh, this is just evil coming mm-hmm. upon us. Like, why are these people convulsing and why are, and they're already dead? It just, I mean, they had no concept of what was happening and they were terrified. Um, when the plague hit, victims would die between four and seven days. It would happen so quickly. And the mortality rate was so high that they would just have mountains of bodies buried in mass graves. They didn't know how to get them out fast enough or what to do with them. In fact, there's, um, I was looking this up recently, actually, they, it, there's a map um, that I pulled up on Google of areas around London that had been used as uh, mass graves. Wow. And Blackheath, which is near where my parents live on the other side of the river, Wow. Um, there's like a large green space there now. And underneath that, apparently somewhere is are buried a bunch of plague victims because at the time it was wow. outside the city. Wow. So just to get them out of there, it's just was so... Um, horrendous and scary. And so you've got to imagine, and this is what happened, whenever the plague would break out, people bailed immediately. They all left town. And so here's Catherine. I am setting the stage here for a reason. Here's Catherine knowing this is a contagious, scary, deadly disease. And she decided with a few- And a brutal- Brutal, so brutal. And she decides with a few other um, gals that she brought alongside her to throw herself into ministering to these people, not leaving with everyone else and running away, but staying, praying for, tending to the sick without any thought for her own health or safety. And so she became, as a result, very well known. Um, You can imagine uh, anybody who stuck around. I mean, that really got people's attention. Like, wow, she stayed during the plague. She didn't run away. And so she was so selfless and sacrificial. a lot of the women that traveled with her widows? Ooh, that's a good question. I don't remember that. I'm pretty sure that it was a collection of widows. And the reason she collected them, too, is because without husbands, they were considered destitute. Mm. So even the fact that she gathered these women together, she was gathering together the disenfranchised Mm. and training them. How to minister. I love that. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so cool. I think they were called like mantelates or mantelates or something. I don't know. Right. Some, some something. Latin word. A yeah. very interesting <laughs> Italian word. Yes. yes. There we go. <laughs> and I don't speak it Italian. So there you go. And that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> but I think this is how, yeah, she and these women, I mean, they earned what, what we would call nowadays street cred mm-hmm. because people were like, wow, we can respect that that willingness to sacrifice yourself. Interestingly enough, that was the same case with a lot of early church believers. When there were plagues during the Roman Empire, the Christians would stick around. Mm-hmm. It was a powerful witness. It led to a lot mm-hmm. of people getting well, saved. the Christians would run in when others ran yes, out. Yes, nobody would run. Yeah, exactly. They would come right in and, and just lay down their lives. So mm-hmm. just an amazing inspiration and example. And so it was around this time, after tending to people during the plague, Catherine experienced what she called manifestations of divine mysteries. Okay, now I have to ask one second. Now, the plague that we're talking about was in Italy. Mm -hmm. It wasn't in London, because we talked about the bubonic plague in London. Oh, sorry, I was just giving an example there. Right, Yeah. but where she is is Florence, right? She's in Florence. Siena. Siena, Mm -hmm. right, okay. And and then I know she went to Florence a lot, too. Okay, yeah, I mean, yeah, she ended up kind of becoming more, um, Mm -hmm. not global, but she ended up traveling more after Mm -hmm. this time. But this is in Italy. Yes, 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 yes. 
And so she at this time started experiencing uh, what she called manifestations of divine mysteries and a command from the Lord again, telling her, leave your cell and enter the public life of the world. And so this became more of, I guess you'd say, a political work over the next several years. And like you were saying, this is where she started to travel a little bit more. And again, remember, Catherine is not only a woman, but she was without education or um, political influence. She didn't really have any clout or any reason for anyone to pay attention to her. She was a nun. And so in the natural realm, all of these were strikes against her. But this is just where we see one of those examples, like it says in Corinthians, that God uses the foolish things to confound the wise. Here she is, this foolish thing in the eyes of the world that the Lord raised up. And because of her reputation during the plague, God used that to open a lot of doors. People really began to respect her. And again, remember, because of the way people viewed spirituality at that time, they were more inclined, even leaders in the church or even political leaders, they were more inclined to respect somebody who seemed to have like the presence of God in their lives or, you know, just a clear, I guess you'd say work of the spirit, whatever. And it was obvious like God was using her. And so people began to respect and actually start seeking her advice in different affairs of church and state. Really amazing. Part of that, too, is that she survived. I mean, yes, she's exactly. going in and she's not getting this illness. Yeah. And so because this was a time of um, superstition. Yeah, there's that too. Exactly. So when they're looking at her and she's going in and she's actually meeting the needs of these people, why we said everyone else is running out and she's running in mm-hmm. and she's not getting sick. You know, apparently what I read is, you know, everyone's looking at her going, OK, anytime now, anytime totally. now, anytime now. And no, she ministers to one person after another and never gets sick. Yeah. And that would have been a huge testimony. I'm glad you mentioned that because that actually is huge. Mm-hmm. That gave her a lot of, um, like I said, street cred, respect. Mm-hmm. Um, And so I will say there are some modern writers who wonder if she was too eccentric and bizarre. At one point in her life, she practiced self-mortification and she had what we would now call like an eating disorder. But she later kind of renounced that extreme. So there were times I think we can all fall into that where you get kind of extreme in certain seasons. And she was fasting. Yeah, there's that. She was known for her fasting. Exactly. If you think about if people are really sick and you want God to move. The fasting. And then it became like a way of life and the self-denial. So, again, you know, we've said this before in this program that we tend to cancel people because we find out about the eccentricities or the extremes. But we didn't live in the 1300s. Exactly. In those times. And I think that God makes a lot more allowances and has a lot more grace than we realize. Yes. And I think that Catherine of Siena is definitely an example of that. Yes. He has a lot more grace than we do. And that's a really good point. That's why it's like important to note these are modern writers looking back right, and kind of right. projecting. And, well, why right. did she do that? Right. You know? Putting our kind of chronological ideals and mm-hmm. cultural um, norms mm-hmm. on this woman. And, you know, this is a woman, as you said before, she sold out to Jesus. In that frame of mind, she gathers up the disenfranchised, works mm. among them to help others. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And at that time, like I said, looking at the time she was in, there's no way she could have had such influence if people thought she was some weirdo. If she really was that crazy, right. people would have, you know, dismissed her. So and again, God there was wasn't a lot of written records. So what True. you're getting to is word of mouth and it's an oral history mm-hmm. until it was written down. Yeah, exactly. So that makes a big difference, too, really because, does. you know, people always exaggerate and embellish. And so how much of this is, you know, verifiable? You yeah. know, what we have is we know she existed and we know certain things mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that might have been embellished. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There could. Yeah, definitely some of that. 
And so at this point, you know, again, when she kind of launches out here, she begins to take on significance relevant to like reform in the Mm -hmm. church. And Mm -hmm. so she begins to really speak out against abuse of the pope's power, uh, use of money to feed the luxury of the church, you know, which Mm -hmm. was becoming more and more of a problem. Um, She saw a lot of decline in morals integrity among the clergy and the monasteries, kind of like what you were mentioning about the Knights Templar. Here they are, these men of integrity, and the church is like, oh, we don't want any of that around. Oh, they're making up lies about them. Exactly. And they're bringing them into these feigned court hearings where they're being slandered, and then they'd be tortured till they'd admit something. So there even was they didn't also do it. torture, mm-hmm, extreme torture. Oh, sick, yeah. And they would even torture people who knew them to say lies about them. Mm. So, I mean, it's so Tragic. corrupt. Mm-hmm. So corrupt. And this is done by the religious people. That's yeah. the hard part. These, you know, these are the people that everyone looks up to and thinks so they're perfect. They're kind of like the God. Pharisees and yes, the yes. chief priests in Jesus' time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But such seared consciences. That's I mean, right. we don't even, I mean, we could go down a hole. We could. We could unpack a lot of corruption in the Middle Ages. Forget me. Yes. No, it's true. There's so much to that. But yeah. uh, so some people actually looking back at her life, some historians have actually called her kind of a Martin Luther in mm-hmm. her day. Mm-hmm. She really was one of those early voices that you don't often hear about that were calling out for change. And so she also lived during the Great Schism. I mean, she was there. It was like right. a perfect storm when she was alive. And even though she's not always acknowledged, um, she actually played an important role in bringing unity back to the church, reuniting the church getting the Pope to go back to Rome. And she rebuked him. She wrote a letter to him and said, do not be a boy, be a man. Since God has given you authority and you have assumed it, you should use your virtue and power. And if you're not willing to use it, it would be better for you to resign. So she was very bold with some of these leaders. Uh, She wrote to a lot of other, uh, even political leaders. She wrote to Queen Joan of Naples and said, rise up manfully, sweet sister. It is no longer time for sleep, for time sleeps not, but ever passes like the wind. For love's sake, lift up the standard of the most holy cross in your heart. And so her desire was that God would have the preeminence that he deserved in a time when everyone is all about their own interests. And that was such a big problem. you got to remember, too, we've talked about how the church and state were kind of married. So political and religious leaders were supposed to kind of be all religious, all serving God in their assigned roles. And so she's kind of just coming at it in the culture she lived in, you know, whether we agree with it or not or whatever we think about and, it. And, you know, just the fact that she wrote letters, you see that she was literate and she was intelligent. Yeah, or she had, that's a good point. She either did that or she was dictating. But yeah, mm-hmm. she had developed at that point the ability mm-hmm. to really make her voice heard. But it's neat because she could be really bold, but she could also be very gracious and understanding, uh, meeting people where they were at, encouraging them to live for the Lord. Uh, for instance, she wrote to this humble woman, this tailor's wife named Mana Agnisa. And she wrote with um, a lot of understanding for the demands of a housewife and a mother. You know, she wasn't condemning people because they weren't living as extreme as her. She understood like, hey, you have different responsibilities than I do as a single woman. And so she just encouraged this woman and gave her sensible advice. She didn't condemn her struggles, but just like, hey, the Lord will meet you where you're at. And so you see in a lot of her writings, just the whole spectrum there, that there was a lot of wisdom. And, and she knew when to be bold and when to come in with maybe a softer approach. And so I, I like that we have samples of all of you these know, this writings. Is, this is so remarkable, too, because, you know, most of her ministry took place in her 20s. Yeah. Yeah. She didn't live long. No. Yeah. And so, I mean, we're talking about a 24, 25-year-old, a 28-year-old, a 29-year-old mm-hmm. being so gracious mm-hmm. and willing to risk her life. I've heard that she was beautiful, but mm-hmm. she refused to do any beauty preparations to make herself more attractive, mm-hmm. but that she was considered quite a beauty. She was a looker. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's that's so neat. She just wanted to be fully devoted to the Lord and mm-hmm. not 
focused on herself. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Which is amazing for a young woman, especially in those times. Totally. We're eventually going to talk about Teresa of Avila, and that was more of a struggle for her, was mm-hmm. the that draw to worldly things. And so, uh, you know, Catherine really is, I feel like, one of the best pictures of what the true mystic was supposed to be. You know, somebody mm-hmm. spiritually deep, but also practical, who is heavenly minded, but really engaged in serving God in the world and, and wanting to bring reform at a time when it was so desperately needed. And she never thought about breaking away from the church. She wasn't some renegade who was just yelling at everybody, but she just (laughs) wanted to correct immorality and irregularity. She was grieved by sin and genuinely wanted to see transformation. This again, she's a woman who wants to see this. Yes, which is crazy. In that culture, (laughs) it's like she didn't say, well, I'm a woman, so I can't do anything. I don't Mm. have a voice. I'm powerless. She used the power that God gave her. Yes. And spoke. And it was through her obedience to God, really, Mm. that she was empowered. You know, that's a great point because she was just obedient to go help plague victims. I don't think she was thinking of I'm right. going to open these doors. Right. No. God opened the door and she's right. like, okay, I have a voice now. Right. I remember that when we talked about, you know, maybe like Elizabeth Blackwell or Florence Nightingale. It's like once they realized, oh, God's given me a platform, I'll just use this. That's you right. know, they yes. weren't seeking this. They, no. The Lord gave it to them. Right. And so I love that. In fact, it's interesting. Catherine is one of the only women to be named a doctor of the church, which is pretty remarkable. One historian named O'Driscoll, he said that this was really important because it places these this unschooled woman among the major church theologians, thereby recognizing her ecclesiastical role as a teacher whose doctrine is relevant for the whole church and for all time. I mean, it really was a remarkable door that the Lord opened. So that's Catherine of Siena. I think she's so interesting, too. And, you know, she died at only 33 years yes. old. Yes. That was like so much um, to do in her 33 years. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know. You didn't mention this, but. Did you know she was a twin and that her twin died 10 days after they were born? Her twin died. Wow. And then she had a sister that got married young and she also died. And Mm. her parents tried to force her into marriage with her brother-in-law. And those are the she had pressures on her. Oh, yeah. That she refused for the sake of the Lord Mm -hmm. to really serve the Lord with everything that she had. And again, such a short life, but such a... um, incredible, mm-hmm. powerful life. Yeah. I mean, it was very fruitful again, posthumously that she was, you know, yeah, she was honored. Yeah. As a doctor of the church mm-hmm. later. So, and, and she did suffer persecution as a woman. I mean, she was refused. A lot of doors were closed to her and yet she went through the open doors. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it doesn't always get recognized. That's why mm-hmm. I like to talk about these gals. I mean, you might remember in a previous episode talking about um, Pulcheria, who yes. was the only like empress of any portion of the Roman Empire. We never hear about her. And yet the Lord used her in a really powerful way to, you know, be a defender of the faith like Catherine was. And right. so uh, I just love the strategic way that God placed these women, you know, yes. and used them. Even in the Middle Ages, in a time yes. when you would say, well, no, you know, women don't have a voice. They don't have an open door. She had none of those things. And yet, mm-hmm. and yet by the power of God and just by investing herself fully in the Lord, she was able to do all these amazing things. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to highlight, I'm glad you mentioned that, some of these women in the early church and Middle Ages, because we can kind of skip over this part of history because mm-hmm. we think like, well, all we ever know, all we know about are the guys, you know, mm-hmm. of that time, like the popes and the, you know, people like Wycliffe and the reformers and right, right. Tyndale and all them. Right. But there were actually quite a few women if you kind of just dig a little bit, mm-hmm. you know. But also, too, we, we talked about, you know, a lot of people look at these women, they say, oh, they're so strange. They did this wrong and they did that wrong and they did this wrong. Sometimes those things that we are saying, oh, they did this wrong are actually 
They never did those. But that was There's part that of too. the slander to discount them during their time, mm-hmm. during their own time. These were the charges that were levied against them um, because they were such a powerful influence. Yeah, there were eccentric, weird things that they said Catherine did during uh, when she was ministering to plague victims, like trying to take on their suffering and stuff. And we don't really know if that was true. I mean, yeah. some of that was really... Well, un- you know, yeah. about the early church, it was said that they ate their children because they oh, partook in communion. So yeah, there were yeah. always those type of things that were always intermingled. Uh, same accusations against the Knights of Templar. Mm. I mean, terrible accusations against the Knights of Templar, yeah. uh, which weren't true. But this was a time, I would say that the 14th century was a time of slander. Mm-hmm. A crazy, crazy time of slander. And that was what Catherine of Siena experienced yeah. quite a bit. And yet just went beyond it to do what she was called to do. I love that. Yeah. And that's why she's a woman worth knowing. She is absolutely a woman worth knowing. And that knowing. way, if you're in a conversation, someone brings up Catherine of Siena because you've listened to this episode, you will have something to add to you it. You know all about her. Yes. yes. <laughs> well, at least you know a lot about her. Well, maybe not all. Yeah. <laughs> Enough to pique your curiosity. Yes, definitely. So thanks for joining us again this week week for another episode. And if you have anybody that you would like us to talk about at some point in the future, would you please write in to us and let us know about that woman? Uh, the yes. email address that we have is wwk at cccm.com. You can write into that or you can uh, find us on the women.cccm.com page, cherylsgraciouswords.com page. You can click on the link and find us there so you can get a hold of us. And please find us. Yes, please do. And remember <laughs> to like us on whatever venue you you listen to this podcast. Yes. Because then others will listen and they'll find out about women worth knowing. Indeed. Thanks for joining us again. You'll hear from us next week. Yes, you will. Bye. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett.